This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, which will be the last episode that we publish in 2023, I spoke with the editors of the International Journal of the Commons, or IJC, which the In Common Podcast has been working with recently to produce podcast episodes associated with articles published in the journal. My guests are Frank von Lerhoven, Associate Professor at the Copernicus Institute of Sustainable Development at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, Mike Schoon, Associate Professor in the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University, Sergio Villamayor-Tomas, Ramon Icajal Senior Researcher at the Institute of Environmental Science and Technology, or ICTA, in Barcelona, Spain, and the journal's newest Editor-in-Chief, Maria Claudia Lopez, Associate Professor in the Department of Community Sustainability at Michigan State University. During our conversation, we talk about the journal and its role in the Commons research community, and how the editors think about issues such as journal impact factor, this being one of the many metrics that seem to be exerting more and more control over our professional lives and influencing how we think about ourselves individually and collectively. Frank discussed his view of the journal as a means for community development, applying the same principles of the commons and commoning that we all study to our own activities. And this is also how I feel about the Incoming podcast. In a world that seems increasingly obsessed with growth and scalability and impact, I think it is important to remember that achieving these goals involves trade-offs. And sometimes the first thing to go is our intrinsic motivation or the feeling of being connected with the community. So, dear Commons listener, I hope that as we wrap up 2023, you have time to reflect on what matters most to you and that you enjoy my conversation with my very good friends from the International Journal of the Commons. Okay, folks, well, it's almost the end of 2023, so thanks for joining me. Um, we're here to talk about the International Journal of the Commons and your thoughts about the year it's had and how it's going to move forward. Also excited to learn about some exciting changes that are happening with respect to editorship in the journal, which we'll talk about. Um, so the first question, just to dive right in, and Frank, I'll start with you. Looking back on, on 2023, which we're just about to wrap up, what are some of the accomplishments for the journal that you're proud of and that you want to build on moving forward? Let's start with that. Okay, that's a good question. Uh, hi, Mike, and hi, all others who are in this meeting. Uh, thank you for offering this opportunity to speak a little bit about uh, the great stuff that we have been doing and trying to do in our journal. So the question about accomplishments, uh, looking back, and this is the time to look back, I think one of the things is, well, conventionally, one would look at journals in terms of uh, them being profit or non-profit. We are uh, a journal that uh, asks for uh, APCs, uh, author processing uh, charges, uh, that is debated. I think we have managed to profile ourselves in a different way. We we came to see and, and advertise ourselves more as community-owned and community-operated, which I think is reflecting much more the sentiment with which we uh, try to, 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 to make this adventure work. So the, the, the community aspect, we are all researchers and we want to be in charge and in control and we want to give voice to the community that we represent. That's a more friendly, a more attractive way of framing the journal, not profit, not, not non-profit, no. Community-owned, community-operated. I think that's one branding that we are uh, trying out. We're, we're successful at it. And I think we are going to continue to pitch ourselves in that way. 
Another thing that I like is that we are moving away from uh, giving too much prominence or dominance to the dreaded age index. We have always looked at the age and the age index and the impact factor that journals represent. We could not get ourselves away from it, however much we hated it. But now we are in a position where we are comfortable with somewhat lower impact factor. We have the financial means. We have the community that is convinced that impact factors aren't as important as our bosses and supervisors uh, make us believe. So we have managed to start uh, prioritizing uh, mentorships, for example, giving authors that are coming from uh, a not-so-usual suspect background uh, more support in terms of reviewing and, and a more friendly environment. So we're offering these authors that you wouldn't immediately think of uh, room in our journal. Uh, so so maybe that goes with uh, the, the whole theme, the whole debate of uh, decolonizing uh, not only science ed education, but also publishing. So in, in a meeting with the editorial board, we were referred to as the triumvirate. We, are, we were three white males, so Sergio, uh, Mike and myself. And we had a fairly loose way of getting together in, 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 in meetings and organize uh, things in an ad hoc kind of manner. We have managed to firstly professionalize our uh, management of the journal a, a bit more by means of having very regular meetings with minutes and an agenda uh, that is transparent. And we have invited uh, a more diverse and a younger type of energy in our midst. And I hope that Maria Claudia uh, will, 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 will talk about that a little bit more. And in, in that same line, professionalization, we have uh, started working with a new platform that our uh, that our publisher has, uh, has has built for us. We are quite happy with it. We have to learn how to uh, to work with it still. But uh, I think these are a couple of things that I'm proud of that I think think are things that uh, that, that that are for the better. To Mike next, do you have anything you want to add? And actually, I'll I'll ask a follow up question here. Well, you mentioned wanting to push back on the emphasis on the impact factor in H-index. Can we focus in on that for a little bit as well before moving on to the next topic? Why is it important to push back on those? What And what is the argument that you use to other people that we shouldn't focus too myopically on them? Sure. So I think that these are, um, at this point, uh, a bit arbitrary indices in that there's a lot of games that uh, publishers and journals are playing to boost them in terms of how much they publish and and so on. We see this particularly with predatory journals. We've seen impact factors uh, really increasing over time in a lot of places. Um, ours has has held steady and in, or increased uh, slightly. Um, one of the things that weighs on this is also something that we think is is really important for the journal, and that's the promotion of early career researchers, uh, particularly people that are involved in the association that we're a part of, the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC, um, as well as, as Frank alluded to, the researchers from the Global South that we prioritize as many of our readers and authors are, are from the Global South. So often what this does is uh, creates uh, or publishes work by people who are less well-known, who don't have established names, who are perhaps writing about particular uh, place-based research. And so these things all tend to have lower impact factors than, you know, global studies or big theory pieces or everyone's, every academic's favorite, you know, writing about a new framework. Um, 
So all of these things, all of those things can lead to higher impact factors, even though it's not perhaps the type of, of val same value in, in research that building up a stable of place-based research does in case studies, for instance. So um, we've tried to push back against that by emphasizing some of these things that are really important to our readers and our society um, at the expense of, of impact factors. Um, to counteract that, we do have to think about this somewhat, um, particularly um, there are some researchers that can't or don't feel that they can uh, publish with a lower ranked journal. So we have to try to uh, counteract some of the efforts that are uh, playing against us in terms of lowering our impact factor because of our goals and values and mission of the journal. Um, so in doing that, there's some things that we've, some uh, steps that we've taken to try to address that in particular. And I think that this is still very much in line with the mission of the journal is soliciting special issues on particular topics. We want to take a more active role in uh, pushing some of the frontiers of the, the field and, and going into different areas than the traditional commons. And, and really, uh, in doing that, I think that that provides a mechanism for, for getting one, for getting some of the cutting edge researchers engaged, but two, also exploring new areas that, that may lead to uh, lots of citations and the kinds of metrics that, that, uh, you know, weigh on, weigh on the journal positively. The part of your answer that particularly resonates with me, Mike, is the part that emphasizes kind of the hardest to measure thing, which is how are we actually progressing as a science, right? Which is we, we should all care about, but it's it's kind of this, it's this ephemeral thing that you can't kind of get your hold on. It's hard to really measure where are we and what's preventing us from progressing, but the biases towards certain types of articles and not others, um, I just interviewed Billy uh, Turner, which I mentioned to you, Mike, Billy Turner II, and he's an editor for PNAS. And he mentions that he gets like 10 articles a year that he has to deal with. It's like, here's my new framework for understanding land use change. And he was saying to me in the interview, we don't need more of these frameworks. The bottleneck here is not new frameworks. The bottleneck is people using them in a consistent way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the bias, of course, it makes sense, Mike, when you're saying that the bias comes from the disproportionate reward that those types of papers get in terms of citations. You're going to you you want a new framework. You want your framework to be picked up and out out compete others and be cited. And it's harder to if you just go to a, a field site and do kind of standard nuts and bolts work there. That's not as much of uh, an option for you. And that with that kind of paper, that makes sense. So. I want to bring a perspective as someone that was in a previous life, a faculty member in the Global South. So I was a, a faculty and assistant professor for two or three years in a university in Colombia. And something that is a, like when you are in the Global South, you don't have the many of the resources that you have when you are in the in a university in the Global North. And that is not only the means to publish, but also the possibility to have a, a, somebody that could edit your paper. That goes from the friend that you have here in the next office that you can say like, hey, I'm trying to publish this. And can you look at this? Like that in the Global South is something that is much harder to find. 
And, and I feel that the journal in general has been really inclusive over the years. So even, uh, and I feel that Fra Frank and Mike and Sergio have done a huge effort to make sure that they are very close to people in the global south and that they are welcome uh, many uh, publications from there. And so in that sense, I feel that this is not is not like belong that you don't publish in in this journal because you belong to the club, but because you are like they really want to expand this to expand the community and to expand what the commons and the things that you can publish here are. So Maria Claudia, now that you've mentioned that, I'd love to turn to you. Can you talk about your new involvement with the journal and what motivated you to come on board in your new role? Um, sure. Uh, I will say that I'm just starting. So I have been in a training in the last three weeks to learn more about how the system works. I have been working with Mike Schoon. Um, I'm starting to do my first articles. So uh, I'm super new at this. And I'm learning some of the things about the other side that I haven't seen before. What motivated me to do this? Uh, I feel that I have been a user of the journal in the past, and it was now a good moment to start giving the journal back a little bit more. Uh, I am in a stage in my career that uh, I, I don't have the pressure of the tenure track anymore, so I can do, do help. I can help a little bit more than what I was doing before. Um, and I like that. And this is a journal that uh, is like my house. So it really makes sense to to be doing some service here. Well, I can speak for a lot of people. I think that uh, the community is very excited to have you on board. Thank you. Sergio, do you want to? Yeah, Frank, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, so, so community is the word that is maybe going to glue everything together here. And I was pitching us as a community owned and community operated journal and communities have values and they have a mission. I think Mike was alluding to the values that we represent and that we want to to put forward. There are responsibilities that we think we have. There is an element of education, allowing people to learn what it means to be a, a common scholar. And especially those I mean, inclusiveness is amongst the values that we uh, that we cherish. That means that we also need to welcome people that are not as privileged as uh, the usual suspect scholars are, the, the aces. I mean, so if, if it is between choosing uh, a highway towards a higher impact factor and uh, or welcoming uh, uh, less privileged scholars and helping them like early careers and scholars from the global south and helping them to become a member of the community, to feel welcome to uh, provide them with a learning environment that is friendly, that is helpful, that is supportive. Um, I think the choice is easy made and we have made that choice. We, we are not opting for the easy highway towards a high impact factor where we would only publish the contributions by, uh, by the well-known uh, ACEs in our community because there are a number and if we would cater them uh, exclusively, I think the impact factor would go up. We have chosen community values. We have a mission that we have established for ourselves. Inclusiveness is important, providing a learning environment for those that are trying to become good at what they're doing, that needs a little bit of pushing and, and, and pulling uh, in order to get there. That's who we are, and I think we can be proud of that. No, that's really interesting as well, and I heard part of that from Mike, too, that this idea that 
you can decide whether or not you want to benefit from prestige bias, right? Which is a lot of what drives the motivation. If you're thinking about maximizing impact factor by having well-established names, a lot of that's being driven by prestige bias, right? There's this inherent bias towards wanting to cite people who are already well-established, kind of independent of the work. The Matthew effect that is called, I think. Uh... Right. No, it's kind of the rich get richer, right? And I remember like there was this famous quote from Herbert Simon. He said, I think I at this point I win awards for having won awards because the, the award committees want They also want a sure thing. So it's et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. We haven't got to Sergio yet. So but I do have one follow up question and whoever wants to take can start. So part of the temptation here, right, this is. I think in about half the interviews I've done for the podcast, I referenced James Scott in his discussion of legibility because it's just such a powerful term because that's a lot of what we're talking about here is, right? It's like, how do you make your journal legible to people who would be evaluating it? And the way you make something legible to an external actor who doesn't have a lot of in-depth information about you is you come up with a simplified metric, right? So that's what these metrics are doing. And we've talked about why they're problematic is that if you maximize for one thing, you systematically um, undercut a lot of other things you care about. Have you thought about trying to play this legibility game with some of these other values? Like, could you be documenting systematically how inclusive you are and come up with some kind of inclusivity metric? Or do you not want to play the game? Part of what Frank just said has to do with that, trying to brand the journal as a journal by and for the community. Um, uh, whether that can be captured in a number, I'm not really sure. But I think we can do a better job at profiling it in our webpage and among our readership. I remember we had a very interesting meeting in the last IGC conference in Nairobi with the Early Career Research Network. And that was a great, uh, I think, a starting point for a more intense collaboration. I think the message was really conveyed there that this is a journal uh, by and for them. And that's why I think they are now working on a workshop that plans to end up in a special issue with us. Um, we, we are trying to uh, reach out in other uh, conferences too. I was recently in the International Society for Ecological Economics Conference in in Colombia, Santa Marta, and we had a very interesting uh, meeting there with chief editors of all the journals, World Development and Ecological Economics. And also, I think we, we had a, a chance there to voice uh, the journal and our values. Um, where that can be captured in a number, it's a different thing, but maybe we should also diversify the ways we we profile ourselves. Yeah. And Sergio, you mentioned the web page, and I know you've transitioned to a new um, online interface. How is that going for you? That's working uh, quite well. I mean, every transition requires adjustments, of course. Um, but so far, I think we've we've been quite uh, happy. I mean, it also means that before we were hosted by a publisher related to the university, Frank can provide more information about that. And now we've moved to that different one. So we sort of got independent from the university and it was in a way a, a big move for us. Also because it um, basically shows that we can keep doing this as an open access community-based journal 
out of the umbrella of a public organization. And I think that that's very important given the state of the publishing industry nowadays. And uh, of course, uh, it, it has also enabled to um, linkages with other platforms like the In Common podcast. And we expect it also to host other ways to communicate with our readership. We are working now on that. Related to that, I think one other thing that I'd like to focus on is that in part because this is open access and we do have uh, publication fees associated with it, uh, one of the things, particularly because of, of the audience that we're trying to serve, is that we try to keep those charges low. Um, you know, there's other journals, I won't mention any by name, you know, they may rhyme with violence, you know, the, with charges of 5,000 plus uh, dollars for a publication, you know, we're really not, not making money. We're trying to keep things as low as possible. Any excess that we do get from, particularly from, you know, the authors from the, from, from the global North, that have access to funding goes to support waivers uh, for people that can't afford it. Um, so, uh, and our publisher is also working with us on that. So we can, we can support the type of authorship that we want to see. I mean, Mike, I think I saw nature charging like $11,000 to make an article open access. And I don't mean this as an unfriendly question, but I'm curious. And I think some listeners will be, what does the money go to? Is it for maintaining the website, et cetera? Like kind of what are your main operating costs that you need to kind of stay afloat, you need to cover to stay afloat? Yeah, I can take that question. I, th I think there is a, a base charge that our publisher has to uh, charge. Uh, it's a open access friendly publisher that is based in, in London. It's called uh, Ubiquity Press. It has a number of open access journal under its umbrella. I think that base fee that they have to cover to cover all the overheads, marketing, uh, tech assistant, the, the financial division, the support we're getting, the back office kind of stuff. And then we have a top up that we take or we uh, and it's dependent on the membership uh, on your membership status if one of the authors in the list of co-authors is a member of the association you pay less than than what you pay if you're not a member and we always offer uh, authors the opportunity to become a member before we charge them so it's also an incentive to gain or to to get more members but that extra money of about two to three hundred british pounds or euros or i don't know what the uh, currency is goes to uh, financing and commissioning special issues that we uh, either pay partially or uh, entirely. We are trying to set agendas and allow room for uh, topics to be covered in special issues that, that we think are important, but that usually are not uh, brought to us uh, spontaneously. We also uh, pour part of that money, and that's an important part, into, uh, into waivers for uh, uh, student-only papers and for papers from authors who are working and living in the, in the global south. And maybe this is a moment, this podcast, if you're listening, if you're one of those audience, don't be shy to ask us for exemptions and for waivers because we are uh, we are quite uh, willing to uh, work with you and look at the possibilities. And we have, I wouldn't say ample means, but most of the time there is a possibility to, uh, to meet you somewhere. Where we, uh, where where all of us can be happy, and where we will offer you the opportunity to publish with us, even if you don't have the means. So this is kind of where things go. Nothing of it goes to us. Uh, we we do everything pro deo. Uh, 
working after hours, not telling our bosses that we're spending time on this. Which in some ways is almost a little crazy in itself. I mean, I, I sometimes hang out with business people. I was talking with Mike a little bit about this the other day, not this exact topic, but the amount of work that academics are normal. We are like normalized to do a lot of work for free. And we kind of assume it's kind of part of the gig. And I often think that's fine. And sometimes I think that maybe in some instances, it'd be good to depart from that norm and value our work monetarily more. I'm not necessarily applying it to this situation, but yeah, Frank. Well, everything comes back to that sense of community that we're having. So I'm part of my community of my neighborhood and I'm not charging for anything that I'm doing for my neighbors. I'm not charging for anything I do for my family. Uh, it's I, I, I do it and I do it gladly. It's a service that I render. It's 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 a work of love. So so maybe everything comes back to that sense of community, community ownership, community uh, uh, operation by and for the people. No, the community. So I, I I'm a bit uncomfortable with talking about uh, about uh, doing things for free as if this were a market, or putting a metric on the amount of diversity that we or inclusiveness that we represent. It's 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 a normal thing that we shouldn't worry about too much and, and we shouldn't try to capture it in metrics i it makes me feel uncomfortable but that's my take on it no i think that's well said frank thanks sergio yeah maybe just to expand that it's not only us who are doing things uh for free quotation marks it's also all the reviewers who review for us i mean that's incredible work they are doing and it's interesting that the, the ones that who who respond the quickest and do the best reviews are people who, who I believe are part of the IECE and the commons community. So there seems to be something about feeling as being part of a broader community in 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 the willingness to to pitch in. Um, and I've, I've heard people saying that the solution to the reviewer crisis, if we can call it that way, is paying reviewers to do the, the job. And I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not entirely convinced that paying reviewers to do the job would solve the problem. I it seems to me that uh, an equally likely hypothesis that uh, precisely emphasizing that this is part of our duty as professionals within an epistemic community and so on and so forth. Hmm. Yeah, if I I may, it's 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 an open door to move from community to seeing the journal as a commons itself. And if you apply everything we professionally know about commons, I mean, you wouldn't send an invoice if you have participated in a meeting that is deliberating on the rules for managing a common community forest or an irrigation system. I mean, you go there, you participate, you do your community uh, duty, you discuss, you, you engage in monitoring activities, all the things that we know are part of the design principles. I mean, we have this professional uh, lens that we use to look at our at the topic that we most love but we are operating in the same sense so so that's a metaphor that would maybe explain why we have no problem not being able to send invoices whenever we do something for the journal i mean there is something kind of very satisfyingly meta about all of this that a journal about the commons is trying to kind of live the principles of a lot of the commons. And and as, as Mike said, the term commoning has become very prominent as a way to express that. Actually leads me to another question. Have, have you, have you seen an uptick in articles that explicitly use that framing of commoning? Are the nods coming through on the podcast? 
Yeah, there's there's been a, a a big uptick. I Frank, you you probably know the status. I think we have a special issue that'll be coming out to celebrate the work and life of Silka Heifrick. Yeah, it's a it's a it's it's a beautiful uh, batch of articles that is currently being put together by uh, Kuhn Bartels and uh, Hendrik Wagner's. They have labeled it uh, with the term the common verse, and it is indeed in celebration of the life and works of Silke, who uh, unfortunately passed away. But I'm expecting uh, this to be a, a prime example of uh, applying the principle, the concept of commoning to uh, to what we do. And I, I, I welcome that. It's closer to how commoners themselves understand what the commons are, what commoning is. So that's a, a welcoming, uh, that's, that's a trend that is very welcome to me. I would also say that it's not only about commoning. I, I, my impression is that the, the journal is increasingly opening up uh, to uh, a diversity of theoretical and epistemological approaches other than the institutional analysis that was found into the journal. Uh, we had, I think it was a couple of years ago, a very interesting special issue rooted in feminist political ecology. And there's now a special issue um, on irrigation management that is taking a very social constructivist uh, approach ar around the idea of hydrosocial territories. Um, I mean, critical institutionalism has been also touched upon in a number of papers already. So yeah, it looks like um, the, the commons theory uh, is in a sort of crossroads now in terms of theoretical inputs and the IGC is certainly witnessing all that. So I think we could transition now to 2024 and looking forward. Having talked about kind of the, the values that you're espousing and the successes that you had in 2023 what are um some ongoing challenges maybe that you want to try to meet in 2024 what are some new innovations maybe you're interested in trying or are you mostly thinking about maintaining what you've been doing would you say frank can we start with you again i would say and i'm looking at my colleagues to see if they uh they, they agree that that capacity is still an issue. I think there are many things that we have tried that didn't quite fly. For example, uh, dictating or having an impact on the agenda a bit more by commissioning uh, special issues. We had grandiose ideas. We have brainstormed about it, but it was a bit slow in getting things into the air and getting things accelerated. Uh, it's it's and, and, and we... We are amateurs and we have a limited amount of time that we can dedicate to our task. So it requires quite a bit more convincing and, and, and professionalization uh, to, 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 to do these kinds of things. Uh, so we had ideas about making good use of all sorts of conferences and, and, and so forth and so on that are going on that we could use as a springboard for for harvesting contribution to 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 identify and and, and talent and, and new topics and get a sense of uh, what the community is up to what the newest of the newest uh, things out there are but because of uh, of of capacity problems we just can't i mean the, 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 at the end of the day honestly there are only so many hours in a day and uh, 
we have to fill them with other stuff. So I would say that branching out and, 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 and trying to get more people on board still, younger people also maybe, the early career uh, people that are quite active in the association might listen to this podcast and feel, hey, if you're looking for help, I can do this. They can happily uh, try to get in touch with us and we'd be more than happy to talk with them. So that that's one thing that comes to mind. I think the one of the other um, big things that we're trying to focus on is, as always, is continuing to increase the the speed of the review process, things like this, uh, finding reviewers uh, for seems to be pervasively more difficult for all journals at this point. Everyone's talking about it, complaining about it, trying to find skilled, qualified reviewers is getting tougher and tougher. People are more and more stretched for time. Some of this is due to the proliferation of journals, the rate of publication. Uh, you know, this is uh, this is also a, a commons dilemma where just everyone is incentivized to crank out more and more publications and and everyone has less and less time to review. Um, so we have these kind of perverse incentives in place. Um, so for us as as editors trying to find reviewers, trying to keep the review process going smoothly and quickly so that authors can see their publications get published in a timely manner. Yeah, I forget who mentioned it to me, but it was someone at a conference once mentioned a concern that in academia, we could get to a point where everyone's writing and no one's reading because you just, you don't have time to read because you're writing and it's just like this self-fulfilling cycle. What do they say? Journalists read and don't cite and, and academics cite and don't read. Yeah. That's going to be the, the subheading for the title of this podcast now. <laughs> I mean, related to this, maybe something that we like a uh, good goal for next year is to keep doing what I think it's been a good job in diversifying the way we communicate the journal content. The podcast has been a great step forward. And so it would be great that if we continue working on that. Frank has been really good at it. And Michael, thank you also for putting the, flat, the platform Um for us to work um, also we are using Twitter and there are probably other many other ways to to outreach uh, our community and uh, we, maybe also there are I mean, we've been thinking about diversifying also the way we publish articles um, the typical 8,000 word research article is good for empirical papers but maybe there are other ways to precisely communicate more thoughtful pieces that are more readable, shorter, and put people to think instead of to just browse results, empirical results. Yeah. Very random question. Have you all heard about the the fact that some people now have their own chatbots that they can use to and summarize a whole PDF? You can just ask the chatbot, like, can you summarize the main findings of this entire article for me? And people are are finding that they can that it can work. Oh wow, I didn't know about that. I mean, you reminded me of it, Sergio, because you were talking about this eight thousand word article that most people don't read the whole thing unless you're like really motivated to spend like a whole day reading this one particular article. And it's a little bit, it's kind of tantalizing, frankly, from like a meta analysis perspective. But it's also a little spooky. Spooky. It's like, well. 
if everyone's going to write 8,000 word articles just to be dumped into an AI chatbot and summarized in 400 words, why don't we just skip to the 400 word version? <laughs> well, that's called abstract, right? Yeah. The underlying question or the related question regards uh, chat GPT, which is something that we haven't braced ourselves for just yet, but it's definitely something that we will need to do. I mean, I have, I mean, I've used chat GPT in the same fashion. I mean, just as a, as, as, as a test, I can, I can have a uh, 10 slide set of texts prepared by chat GPT that is based on a scientific article, just with a prompt says, this is the article. This is the, this is the link. Give me text for about 10 slides with an interactive moment uh, uh, for educational purposes for a group at this or that level, bachelor's, master's, and it's spit out the summary uh, of that. But we are getting, uh, I think we were discussing the other day that we're getting from one particular author uh, a submission about every month. Uh, and, and up till now, we have rejected the submissions, but there is this, this suspicion that maybe this author is producing jet. GPT generated texts that, uh, that 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 he or she tries to sell as uh, as original su submissions, and I, I frankly, I mean, we don't have the professional level or capacity to to deal with this. I hope that our publisher is trying to uh, a spooky foresight that we uh, haven't quite wrapped our heads uh, around. I think. Yeah. So Maria Claudia, looking forward to twenty twenty four, and also I want to make sure that. You have the opportunity if you wanted to respond to kind of parts of the previous conversation, but looking forward to 2024, kind of what are your hopes and your involvement with the journal? I learn more about it, like get the proficiency so that I can manage my own um, articles and uh, make sure that I don't need Michael Schoon as much as I have been needing him in the, in the last three weeks. Um, and maybe... I, try to bring new reviewers into the mix, try to uh, see if there is the possibility to do maybe a special issue with some of our colleagues as well. Um, but these are things that we haven't discussed as a group yet. Uh, it is more uh, right now, I'm trying to understand how the system works. And, um, and I have to say that I have, um, like since it's my first time doing this, I have been uh, looking every day to see how fast the reviewers accept uh, or not the papers. Like I want to see how fast is the system and how uh, uh, who responds and who doesn't respond. And and something that they were mentioning before about these the community and how like some people that have served the association uh, in the past, I'm seeing them, like we send them a request and they reply right away. So I'm, 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 I'm happy to see, as I say, the other side and to learn that a lot of these people that uh, write a lot about the commons, they also are providing to this common, to this common good. That is fascinating. Mm. So to follow up a little bit, Maria Claudia, what's a special issue that you would love to see the journal publish in the next year or two? On what topic? Like a couple of things. Uh, something on feminist political ecology will be fantastic. Uh, uh, I think it is a topic that even from the workshop in itself, they are starting to work more 
uh, now that they brought Diana Ojeda uh, into the workshop. And uh, uh, in a very selfish way, I would like to see something done related to energy communities, uh, energy-based communities, uh, something that I'm, I'm starting to do in my own research where I'm, where I'm bringing a lot of the uh, lessons from the commons to a completely different topic. So I would like to see something like that um, in the future. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with the term energy-based community. What is that referring to? Like what I, the way that I use it is like these community-based um, energy systems that are small communities around the globe that are or not connected to the grid are uh, implementing okay. uh, like in the global south, I'm seeing that in many places where communities are not connected to the grid and are not going to be connected. So they have started creating these uh, combination of solar panels and other things. And in the global north, I'm seeing this as well in places that are connected to the grid, but it's a way for communities to, um, like, to get together and to uh, take advantage of their look where they live so that they can lower uh, emissions and lower their, their bills as well. Okay. Community energy is also the energy that we, the four of us, uh, generate when we put our heads together. That's. <laughs> but the special issue will not be around that topic. <laughs> no, I don't think so. We've covered a lot of ground, folks. This has been really great. Are there any topics that you want to make sure we discuss before wrapping up, or are there threads that we started to unravel that you want to put a bit of a bow on? Keep reading us. Keep sending us your ideas, pitching special issues, sharing your, your work, asking us for help. We are willing to work with you if you feel that, uh, that we can. Maybe that's the message that you can use to wrap up with. We're here for you. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.